0: Right, go ahead and talk. Mm-hmm. Say, you're listening to the Word Bros Podcast. No. Do it. No. Do it. <laughs> Say, you're listening to the Word Bros Podcast. <laughs> Do it. <coughs> you're
1: listening
2: the to the Word, Word Bros, Bros Podcast. podcast. The, the Word Bros Podcast. com. <laughs>
3: Welcome to another fantastic edition of Word
0: Bros. Yeah, buddy. This episode of the Word Bros is brought to you by the fine, fine people at the Comics Publishing Institute. Our main man, 50 grand, awesome dude Gamal Hennessy, has started the uh, Comic Publishing Institute. Do you want to make a living publishing your comics but don't have a viable business plan? Do you want a long-running career creating comics for well-known and emerging characters but don't understand how the business works? Do you want to learn more about the legal and business aspects of the comic book industry? If you answered yes to those questions, I, did, that, I, did. That, I so did I, Kevin. So did I. The Comics Publishing Institute is for you and they can help you reach your goals. Go to... What is the website here? It is comic institute.com and you can sign up for this course and you can take these courses and it's a lot of fun gabal is a super smart guy he's the comic book attorney you've heard him on this podcast several times he knows what he's talking about he's a wonderful guy and he can help you navigate your way through the business of comics because again comics is a business at the end of the day
3: yeah it is and you also need to a lot of the information that Gamal gives you that's outside of real comics business it's it's things that are happening in the industry that can affect your career yeah so it's someplace you want to be if you're trying to make comics
0: so check that out
3: Publishing Institute
0: there'll be a link in the um, in the description of the episode and without any further ado we have a very special guest today Kevin who is our guest
3: Bob Fingerman
0: you may know Bob Fingerman's work from Heavy Metal magazine. He's done some stuff there. He's got uh, Dottie's Inferno. He's got the Pariah Redux. You may know him from Mad magazine. You may know him from National Lampoon's. He's had TMNT. A, TMNT. Had,
3: well, yeah,
2: we didn't even we didn't everything. even talk to him about that. That's, we didn't even get yeah. to. Yeah.
0: But he's been around this business for a very long time. He's a wealth of information. He's a very cool guy. We had a really good time talking to him, and we, we want you guys to listen to it. So uh, we present to you in uh, in.
3: It's entirety, you can't see him, but he's wearing this really lovely shirt and and he's drinking wine because like that's what happens when you're like comic book famous, bro. Yeah, he was awesome. so ladies and gentlemen, we present Bob Fingerman.
1: fingerman hello bob fingerman Uh, i'm so delighted to be here
0: don't we were having such a wonderful and fun conversation (laughs) before when i hit record everybody clams up on me it's like no dude let's let's keep that energy going we were having a good time you're drinking wine and we're talking about dogs and having a great day this sounds sounds wonderful now bob was telling us beforehand that he just got a new puppy right
1: now this no this isn't a puppy it's an older dog right yeah yeah he's a six-year-old i mean he's the size of a mouse but he's he's, he's a grown-up dog and And, uh this this might i don't know if this is inappropriate or not he's a three pound dog and basically we're convinced one pound is is his junk (laughs) because he's he's the ron jeremy of dogs that is that is
3: not inappropriate it's it's very much of this podcast
0: we had a dachshund um, his name was Shay. He was a little. I was talking about him before. He was 17 years old. We had two dachshunds, my wife and I, when we first got married. We had Mookie because I'm a baseball fan. I've named after Mookie Wilson and after mm-hmm. Shea Stadium, the baseball stadium. And Shay was this little dachshund. He couldn't have been any more than like, I don't know, maybe 12 pounds. And he had the biggest brajole I've ever seen before in my whole. It was frightening. Like one time he was humping Mookie and it came out and I was, I almost passed out. I was, it was scary. <laughs> Oh, it was it okay. was
3: terrifying this little dog has this giant thing it was so weird now now is, is it a chihuahua bob yeah yeah i had i had a chihuahua with with like really big junk too so like that, that i mean, it must be a chihuahua thing because uh pacino was seven pounds and um his dong was probably like three pounds of the dog <laughs> And it, like he couldn't even sit down without it, like flumping on the floor. I was like, Good lord!
1: <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's comical, and you know, I mean, yeah, it's uh, if I drew it, I would probably erase the drawing because I would say the proportions are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> now,
0: now, I'm not a chihuahua person, explain the chihuahua to me because I just I love dogs. I, I just, the oh, chihuah- I love, the I Chihuahua is a tough dogs. one, Bob. Explain the Chihuahua to me. Like, explain to me the appeal of the Chihuahua.
1: Well, it's—I mean, it's new to me. I'm, I'm okay, 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 in, okay. In relative terms, you know, it's like I never had a dog my whole life up until um, Val and I became a couple, and she had two white Chihuahuas, a brother and sister. Aww. And you know at first I was a little leery because I came to it with my <laughs> preconceived notions about chihuahuas and uh but they were just such little sweethearts that you know I, I uh as she constantly will remind me I've become a small dog person I always thought I liked medium to big dogs and, and I love all dogs I love all dogs but um yeah chihuahuas I think I think probably i'm trying to think who has the worst rep in the world of dogs chihuahuas for one reason and pit bulls for another reason like people are afraid (laughs) because of their terrible owners let's face it pit bulls only the scary kind when they have the scary terrible owners generally i will say and and chihuahuas you know they have that reputation for being really high strung and yippy and yappy and Mm -hmm. Um, That has not been my experience. They're just like real little sweethearts.
0: All right. So good. So you're saying so. So you're saying if you've judged the Chihuahua, it's not every Chihuahua. Try it. Try it. Try it. It might be for you.
1: Exactly. It's always, especially when it comes to dogs, it always comes down to the uh, to their humans. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's always the bad, the bad traits and bad this and that that they pick up from the humans, you know, because like some of the sweetest dogs I ever met have been giant uh, pit bulls, you know, and they're just like big, cuddly sweethearts always so you know you show me an asshole dog and i'll show you probably an asshole owner so i,
0: I think you could say the same for kids too like that works for children <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs> if, if you show yes. me if you show me a shitty kid uh, i'll i bet they have shitty parents like that's just the that's way it goes so, right
1: absolutely yeah so, nature nurture, all that stuff
0: yeah so yeah I, I i'll let you at the end of the podcast i'll let you guess what kind of kid my kid is is my kid cool or is my kid <laughs> a dick Oh, well, you can tell when we're when we're done. So, Bob, I mean, like, we're really honored to have you on, man. You are like a like a like a legend. Is it
1: okay yes. if we call
0: you that? Like, you're a, a comic book legend, dude. Right?
1: Um, come on. <laughs> <laughs> either either that sounds really egotistical, or like I'm not. Quite right. So yeah, somewhere in the middle there's probably. <laughs> i'm comfortable with it i guess i don't know legend's also a really nice way of saying wow you've been at this for a long time <laughs> <laughs> i mean you
0: have been doing this for a long time but i think that yeah. says something about your about your skill set and about your talent and about your passion for it i mean you've been making comics since i was in high school dudes so and like and you're still doing it and you're still doing it at a very high level so that says something for your talent and your ability yes
1: I hope so. Either that or I'm just too persistent to uh know when to call it quits. But no, I like <laughs> to think I like to think maybe uh actually I'm continuing to develop. So uh yeah, I don't know. Um I'm I yeah. And the other thing is I enjoy doing it, you know, that's the one thing. It's like it's always sad to me when somebody starts off doing what they love and it ends up just feeling like a grind to them. Mm-hmm. And so pretty early in my career, I did some course adjustments because I could feel that beginning to happen because I was doing work I wasn't enjoying. It's like, okay, I'm doing comics, but I'm not enjoying the type of comics that I'm doing. So I better do something about this. But, you know, I think so long as you keep enjoying what you're doing. That's that's great, by the way i it just is probably what should have been an off air question yes, sir. I don't have headphones on. Would it be better for your audio if I did? no, you sound perfect No, you're, you just sound fine, yeah, okay,
0: yeah, you sound perfect, and i love the I love the look you've got going. I think headphones would ruin it like you've got a really classy vibe going. headphones you just not i like I like what you got going on right now,
1: but <laughs> you like look- a little my little french guy t-shirt and you're drinking the wine and it's and just perfect wine. yeah like, like it's, it's like
3: it's very elegant uh, yeah. like we're
1: we, we we feel like uh brutes
3: and savages over here having to ask you questions
0: i gotta be honest with you i'm wearing a hooded sweatshirt and i feel underdressed like i really do I'm like i'm wearing I want-
3: a Beanie, so like,
0: <laughs> I want to go, go upstairs and change.
1: <laughs> this is just a cold room in the house. It's an H H&M and shirt. It's not that fancy, but it looks.
0: But that's the thing, though. That's why you know it's good because it looks cool. Now, you, I guess, like the first big thing, because you said you were doing comics before. What was the first thing that you that you said you said you were doing comics? You felt like it was becoming a grind. What was the first thing that you did that kind of pulled you out of that feeling?
1: Well. I mean, there are a couple of, you know, this is the thing. I don't really want to disparage any of the work I've done. It's just certain things you don't know. They're not for you until you do them. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I started right now. Now's where I can really date myself. You know, the first pro regular pro work started in 1984. Wow. Okay. Long, long time. Yeah. Long long haul uh, at this. And, you know, it was a pretty auspicious start. It's one of those starts that gives you a big head when you're young and then you get kicked in the teeth a bit and humble <laughs> and, and know your place. Because, like, you know, I, I I attended the School of Visual Arts in New York, SVA, and my instructors were Will Eisner and Harvey Kurtzman. So pretty good, oh. you know. <laughs> I mean, that's why I chose SVA. It's like, okay, if I'm going to take a, a – uh comics major, cartooning major, those are the guys. Um, if my timing had been better, Spiegelman Spiegelman would have been my third uh instructor, but I think he took a sabbatical or something. But anyway, um midway through my semester with Kurtzman, um he he basically he saw my my personal work not the work i was doing for his class but my personal work and he ended up hiring me to do my first pro gigs uh for a book that he was editing so you know when your jump in point is is being hired by harvey kurtzman that's pretty good
0: yeah yeah yeah
1: (laughs) and so i you know of course i did the logical thing which was drop out of school (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, maybe that wasn't what SBA uh, would have liked from him hiring me to do extracurricular work, but, uh, no regrets. Cause you know, I started working regularly like that same time. I also got a book contract for a French publisher, uh, which ultimately didn't get, uh, fulfilled. I did some of the work, but the book, not enough to complete the book. Um, but it was a good, it was a good start you know cuz i was 19 just turning 20 wow so that's got crazy. a nice nice head full of steam and as i say then you know then the world has a way of saying don't get too big for your uh, britches
0: so so at 19 20 years old i mean you're sitting under the learning tree of of Will Eisner and and Kirsten. like what was that uh, like what was that like at that age like how how much of that did you just like wake up every day as like were you a comics fan early on and you just wake up and like pinch yourself and go holy shit that's that's Will Eisner like that guy that's the guy and he's
2: but, teaching yeah, me how to do this
0: like <laughs> I couldn't even imagine something like that
3: yeah I, Adam, well go ahead no 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 I was gonna say I would imagine that that was like very surreal
1: it well. I mean, this is the weird thing. It's like, I think some of this also comes from, you know, growing up in New York, which, you know, is for good or for ill, I would say good, a cultural hub uh, on the planet. Um, For some reason, it felt appropriate that those guys were teaching, like, you know, because it was like, okay, this is New York. These are the caliber of teachers we should have here. Um, that said, I was, I was, Kurtzman was the one who was more intimidating to me because I was a bigger Kurtzman fan, you know, growing up with Mad, Mad was, <laughs> I mean, Mad is one of the most important parts of my creative DNA of anything, because just, especially like when you're a kid, you don't really understand the concept of reprint versus new everything's new when it's new to you. So like when I would, when they would do those, I don't know if either of you guys are old enough to remember, but mad back when mad was a thing, they used to do these things called super specials, which were, you know, just reprint issues, but they would bind into the um, super specials, a full color facsimile of one of the old mad comic books, which was, you know, the pure, undiluted Kurtzman stuff so but those to me I didn't really think oh this is from the 1950s to me it was brand new and it was just like that stuff blew my mind you know just these balls out parodies of of Superman and Batman and all the other crazy stuff they did in there so when I found out because you also when you know Kurtzman never really had a byline it was always just the artist you know Kurtzman except for the covers never it was I guess things changed, but there were never like writing credits. So, but when I learned, I guess when I was in high school, that Harvey Kurtzman was the father of mad. And then I saw he was teaching at SBA. It was just like, oh my God, I have to, I have to go to that school. I have to be one of his students. And it was a weird, it was kind of a weird thing of like, you know when you meet your heroes you don't know what to expect and the class was not great to be honest (laughs) (laughs) um and i say this you know with love but it's a weird thing because like he didn't teach what he was really known for like he didn't teach comics he was teaching uh gag cartoons like you know the single panel really oh wow the caption (laughs) that almost seems like a waste right Yeah. It was very weird. It was, I think, I think in a way, because, you know, back then comics certainly weren't as respectable as they've kind of become. So, you know, it wasn't a big program. And I think they kind of figured, well, Eisner's covered the sequential part. Kurtzman can do the humor part, but it wasn't sequential humor. It was all just gag panels. And I had no interest in being like a New Yorker cartoonist or anything like that. So I didn't even read the course description. So when I show up and I'm in Kurtzman's class and he's teaching gag panels, I was very confused. I was like, I don't even know what this is. Like, why is this happening? So I didn't do good work for him in class. I just didn't because it was like he was very nice man, but it was like he was not the most charismatic teacher so if this is a very kind of roundabout way of saying like when he did see that private sketchbook of mine because i like i just went to use the bathroom or whatever and i come back and he's paging through my sketchbook um that's when he realized i wasn't you know the, well, that i had something what'd he say well, he actually called me out into the hallway, said, Fingerman, uh, we need to talk. Oh, wow. That's, that sounds awful. <laughs> I would have been nervous as hell right then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, like, he brought me out into the hall, he closed the classroom door, and I was nervous. It was like, what did I do? And he said, I didn't know you could draw, which was, I didn't think I was doing work that bad for him. But, <laughs> He, you know, it really was that blunt uh, where he was just like, you're not doing great work in my class. And so I, I pretty much said to him, we're putting our cards on the table. And he said, yeah. And I said, I don't get, basically what I just said to you. is was like, I don't get what you're doing here. I don't understand. Like you're this great storyteller and this class is about gag cartoons. And I said, I don't care about gag cartoons.
0: Holy shit. That's, That's amazing. crazy. <laughs> yeah.
1: Which again, you know, is that sort of, kind of defensiveness and arrogance that only a teenager can muster (laughs) Um, but it, it like on a dime it went from me being a very lackluster student to when I said I don't get what you're doing here he said do you want to work for me and it was just like to go from nothing to like and it was great because everything he wasn't as a teacher he was as an editor so I got my education from him Uh, out of class like we would have to have secret meetings because the one thing he did say he was very clear is like don't tell any of the other students about what we're doing because then there's like favoritism and this and that so it was very it was cool because it also had that sort of hush hush clandestine quality you know you're sneaking around
0: like you're like a, you're like a comic
3: spy at this
1: point oh, yeah right? a yeah. comics
3: karate kid like yeah. he went straight in with like Miyagi
1: and he's like paint the
3: fence like over there <laughs> this is an amazing story Bob
0: yeah
1: yeah so yeah it was pretty interesting because like we would meet up before class you know and I would give him the roughs that I was working on and or I would give them to his he had a teaching assistant also a very good cartoonist named Sarah Downs so it was either meeting up with Harvey before class or meeting with Sarah. And I would get his notes um, where he would draw over my roughs, you know, of like draw this part this way and this part that way. So I really learned a lot from him. And and, you know, even though the pay was pretty bad, even, even by 1984 standards, I was suddenly getting paid, which was, you know, that's what it was, you know, that's why you're going to a school. Like SBA is to become a professional,
2: right. and
1: so you know, uh, yeah, it was very interesting. The, the beginning of my career started in a pretty interesting way, you know, because it was it was not I think typical. Um, because like I say, the other thing was was getting a deal with a at the you know very well known French uh, comics publisher, uh, this publishing house called Al- Albin Michel. Did you guys ever hear of a um, strip called Ranks Rocks?
0: I can't no. say that. I can't say that I have, no. Yeah,
1: Heavy Metal. Here we go. So Here we tying go. It in, there you go. In. Look at Bob. What a segue. I love it. He's a pro. Well, Heavy Metal uh, published the uh, English language translations of this strip called uh, Rankserox, which was done by a couple of Italian uh, creators, uh, Stefano Tamburini and Tonino Liberatore. And it was basically about this hyper-violent robot and his underage human girlfriend, uh, although heavy metal was very um, kind of judicious in in uh, changing the dialogue to make her uh, of age, okay, even though okay. in the drawings it's clearly an underage kid, child. Uh, <laughs> it was a very fucked up strip, very violent, very provocative. Anyway, I did a spoof of it just for my own amusement, and a friend of mine who was in a uh, who was the manager of Forbidden Planet. Uh, the comic shop in New York. Uh, A friend of mine was in this band called The Toasters. And I'm trying to remember how they had a connection, but Tonino Liberatore did some artwork for his band, The Toasters. And so I showed this friend of mine, Rob, the the parody I did. And he said, oh, Tonino would think this is funny. Let me send him a copy. So made a color photocopy. And it ended up, not only in Tonino's hands, but Tonino was so amused by it, he showed it to his editor, who then hired me to do these parody strips of Ranksorox for the French market. But again, since this is so long ago, dealing with a French or any foreign publisher was a nightmare. Pre-internet, pre, you know, back when long distance phone calls were prohibitively expensive you know and (laughs) so it it turned into kind of a a a protracted disaster even though i think i did five of these five or six of these trips i can't remember but they all ran in different magazines because it was just one disaster after another which is why the book never ended up happening but still it was you know again these are great learning experiences at the time they they just suck but when you're looking back it's like okay that that was pretty interesting, and then the combination of that and and working for Harvey Kurtzman landed me my first regular domestic gig, which was working for uh, Cracked Magazine. Okay, That's back right. before way before Cracked was a cool website back when it was just a second-rate mad, you know, <laughs> imitation. So. Oh, that's, wonderful. Oh, that's
0: wonderful. No, cracked was always one of those things that I would read when I couldn't find Mad Magazine on my shelves as a kid. Like oh, it that's what always, I was getting ready to say. It was always my backup. Like if I couldn't find Mad, I'm like I will read Cracked, and it was always good. Like it was enjoyable. I was, was you it? know, I mean, I was nine. And it scratched an itch. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I like how
1: you worked for them, and you were like, "Was
0: it good?" I mean, really?
1: <laughs> Nobody chooses Cracked. They want to work for Mad, but they're just not they're not there yet. They're, you know, their skills aren't quite there yet. I mean, I have no regrets about working for cracked, but it's certainly not like it was the pinnacle. It's like you say, it was the one you danced with when, when the one you wanted to dance with wasn't available. It's like,
0: I can't find mad. So I guess I'll get cracked. And then, you know, you've done all kinds of other stuff. What heavy metal, national lampoons, high times, like you've done all of the magazines, apparently like all of them, right? Like every, every, every illustrated cool magazine
1: you've done. I don't know I've done a lot and the thing is at least like when I was working for Cracked it was a really interesting time because I mean who knew you know it's like when you're when you're there you don't know how things are going to kind of shape up but I, but the same group of people you know the same artists who were cutting their teeth working for that magazine when I was were like Dan Klaus and Peter Bag and You know, it was this interesting group of people just starting their careers, you know, who end up, you know, becoming some of the, you know, somebody like Dan Klaus, you know, is absolutely at the pinnacle of of comics, I think. Uh, But, you know, humble origins. So it's good to have humble origins.
0: Yeah, but they don't really sound all that humble, dude. I mean, like, you, right off the bat, your first gig is for Harvey Kurtzman because you told him straight up in a class, like, yeah, I don't think you know what you're doing. And like, like, you get handed the keys to the kingdom. Like, that's such an amazing story.
1: Yeah, it's weird. It's not certainly not the way uh, I would have expected things to go.
0: And now you're talking to us. Like, yeah, like I, I, I wish I could be more impressive for you, Bob. I really could. we're the crack of podcasts
2: exactly hey
0: (laughs) you you can't get on word balloon you (laughs) end up here (laughs) (laughs) but yeah so fast forward it's 2022 i guess it is right because i feel like we've lost so much time now you're doing all this stuff for heavy metal magazine now right like You're working for heavy metal in this kind of era of it. And it's, it's a pretty exciting time. Yes.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I've, I've on again, off again, worked for heavy metal. I think the first stuff I did for heavy metal was 87 or 88. So again, kind of going back away. So, you know, I've been there through several regime changes and so forth and so on, but yeah, it's great. I mean, heavy metal, I was never a superhero kid I like the humor stuff, Mad, Lampoon, like you said, uh, underground comics. Once I discovered those, it was like, okay, this is amazing. And, but heavy metal started when I was in junior high school, first issue debuted same right around when star Wars came out. I think they're both. They're both, I think may 77. So that was a big month for, you know, For blowing my little mind. Um, I was 12 years old, you know, and these two things come out. But the first time I saw heavy metal, it was almost, it was, I was going to say almost, I don't need to throw almost, it was too much for me. Because I'd never seen comics like that before, because they were adult. But they were also just like, this incredible drawing, you know, that's the first time anybody on these shores ever saw Mobius and Corbin well Corbin was in American undergrounds and all that and creepy and eerie but you know Corbin and Mobius and Tardy and all of these mainly French creators who just flipped my switch where it was like okay now I get it now I know what I want to do with my life you know because regular American comic books that's not what I ever would have wanted to do it's like superheroes held no interest for me so it was like okay what am i going to do with like because the other thing i read when i was a kid was tintin you know um and again when you're a kid you don't really think about the details like i didn't even know it was belgian to me it was just like oh this is kind of weird and there's something vaguely uh exotic about it but i don't know quite why Mm -hmm. but you know so the whole the french belgian franco belge comic scene as they call it was just so instrumental in in really getting me excited about comics because it was like okay you can do really adult stuff but also with a degree of polish you don't normally see you know uh so yeah so heavy metal it was you know absolutely on my my list of of publishers that were it wasn't it's not even like bucket list stuff it's like i have to work for them they have to publish me that's how i feel like i'm i'm being uh validated is being in heavy metal so yeah it's, yeah, so, it's, so, it's so it's so weird, so weird how, how
0: um i hear there you go it stopped it's so weird how there are publications like that like when we were first approached by the the dudes from heavy metal. It was like, holy shit, what are you talking us for? Because it's such a legacy publication. Like you were saying, like this was the, fr- this blew my mind as a kid, the movie, the magazine. The movie, a, yeah. It's just, it was out of my, it was completely out of my realm. Like growing up as a little kid in Virginia beach, Virginia, like watching this movie, just having my face melted off. And like, now the people who work there are talking to me about like it just doesn't make sense, but you have to kind of like get over that and put it together and work from it. You
1: know? Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. That's, you know, it's the other thing is like, I mean, I think a lot of people wrestle heavily with the, you know, it's the, like the the uh, Wayne and Garth thing of we're not worthy. We're not worthy. <laughs> yes. It's that, that sense of what is your own personal worth? Because, you know, it's, it's the weird thing about like pursuing a creative career professionally is there has to be a degree of arrogance there just has to be because it's like you're saying pay me and even you know even if not pay me publish my work put my work out there for public consumption which of course also is a two-edged sword because it opens you up to a kind of scrutiny and criticism that you know let's face it most artistic people are a little bit on the fragile side. <laughs> so, you know, when you start getting those one-star reviews, it's like, oh my God, it's horrible. But, you know, you hope for a balance. You hope that there's going to be the good reviews to go with the bad ones. Although I can tell you the bad ones are the ones you remember.
0: Oh, uh, yeah, um, yeah. And why is that? Like, why is that the bad ones you remember? Like
1: Because you... they because they speak to that insecurity. They speak to that sort of lack of self-worth. Because part of you is thinking... Yeah, they're probably right.
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, I, like well, when, yeah. when, when you feel like a fraud and then all of a sudden somebody calls you fraud, like that guy knows, like he knows. How did he find out? How did he see through this facade? <laughs> yeah,
1: well, imposter syndrome is a real thing. And I've, I've found over the years, though, uh, usually the least talented people I know and have met are the ones that suffer from it the least. There's something <laughs> disproportionate because I'm not going to name names, but I mean... I know some, you know, of the biggest names in comics and like, they're brilliant. Absolutely. The pinnacle. Almost all of them have imposter syndrome. They're like, someday I'm going to get found out for the fraud I am. And you're like, are you kidding? You use the word legend. Some of these people are legends. They're like the people that I looked at and was like oh my god i can't believe i can call this person a friend now
0: that's a good question how do we all get past that bob like how do we all get past that because (laughs) every everybody i know on some level of comics they could be like you said it sounds like you even suffer from this to some extent but like everybody on the ladder suffers from this how do we all collectively get over this together like what do we do
1: i don't know and I don't know if getting... Damn it, Bob! You're supposed to have answers (laughs) for us. I don't necessarily think getting over it is a good thing. Because then, like... Because the other thing is, I think too much self-satisfaction somehow leads to stopping growing as an artist. Like, if you're always kind of thinking, they're going to find me out, you're going to keep striving to do better work. It's like, I'm going to get it right this time. I'm going to get it right this time. So at least you're trying. I think when you think, yeah, I got this, do you really have it? And it's like, are you, are you happy with that? And by the way, I don't want to give the indication like I look at everything I do and think, oh, my God, what a disaster. But, you know, <laughs> I can always see what's wrong on mm-hmm. the page. And then it's like at a certain point, you have to walk away from it. Otherwise, you never you never have anything finished. It's like, OK, you have to get to that point where it's like, OK, I'm happy enough where this can now be put out in the world. But there's also a reason why, I mean, it's become a joke with me. Like every time I get a new printing of my work, I go back in and tamper with it and change things. Cause it's like, I'll I'll get it right this time. So, you know, I don't know. I think maybe a a degree, too much imposter syndrome is, is gonna be crippling, but I think a degree of insecurity is gonna keep you honest.
0: I'm just tired I of feeling this way.
1: It's no picnic, but you know, I don't know. Like, like I say, there, there, there are people I've met over the years where they're just like everything. They just do it. And it's like, perfect. You need a little bit more of that. Uh, <laughs> the thing I'm suffering from, I need a little less. And you need a little more. It's like we need to re sort of redistribute the anxiety so that (laughs) everyone has just the healthy enough amount. That's awesome. I love it.
0: Uh, I had a question for you because you said something very profound, but I totally forgot about it because I was was laughing at your at your witty uh, repartees and and enjoyable conversation. So I just forgot. So I'm just going to ask, like you say you live in California. How's L.A.? How's L.A. treating you? You like it out there? Is it fun? Do you dig it? (laughs)
1: I do. I mean, you know, I was a New Yorker for m- all of my life until late 2017, and I kind of hit a wall. So, a change of scenery seemed uh, not only uh, overdue but uh, necessary. So, yeah, I like LA. That's cool. It's uh, okay. I I I find it to be much more relaxed. You know, this is no no disrespect. To to new york but it is a very stressful place oh yeah because
0: everybody's everybody's yelling at each other and like everybody's in such a hurry to get everywhere it's it, hard
1: yeah it new takes you it kind of you know, it t- you know it takes its pound of flesh and, <laughs> and interest and at a certain point it's just like what am i doing what am i doing like there are things that- i miss but i don't miss living there like i really among the many things that suck about Covid times, or you know, I would love to be able to travel back and yeah. feel like that wasn't a potentially <laughs> suicidal thing to do. So, so you it haven't would, tra-
0: you haven't traveled at all since Covid, since the since the pandemic broke out. You've you've been one of those people that have just stayed home.
1: Yeah, I mean, I you know, I go out in the world. It's not like I'm barricading the doors and windows like a zombie movie, but uh, <laughs> you know, and we've had these. These sort of peaks and valleys of like it's okay you can go out be cautious but you can go out in the world and it kind of begins to feel like life again and they're like oh then there's a variant uh-oh you better batten the hatches again and so now we're sort of maybe in like no man's land a little bit yeah between i mean mentalities so you grew up in queens is that, is that where you i did grow up in queens yeah me too where
3: where in queens are you from rego park i'm i grew up in astoria so okay. yeah so like i definitely relate to your uh when when you said you don't miss new york when 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 i left i i was a kid my, my parents moved here uh to virginia and um i can definitely relate to the you know like i miss the food and stuff like that. that that's what everybody says that that comes back from there I, I, I do miss the food from but i will i was only there for like 15 years twelve, something like that so um, there are things you would miss about the city. That there's always something to do in New York. But like uh, I remember being a kid, and never being bored. But like uh, you come here in, in the country, and there's not as much to do. So um, there's there's that.
1: Yeah, I, it's funny because you know my girlfriend is a California native, and so but you know she's a filmmaker and and will watch. She loves especially '70s uh, movies. And we'll watch these New York-based movies from the 70s. And she'll she's like, you grew up in that? It's like, yeah, I grew up in that. It's like New York when it was absolutely its most kind of uh, terrifying. That's the word I was going to use. <laughs> terrifying. Yeah. So it was, again, it was like kind of an anxious childhood. Because, I mean, Frigo Park Queen certainly wasn't like Fort Apache, the Bronx or anything. But it's still, you know, New York, there was a, a palpable sense of danger. Uh, which definitely informed a lot of the mentality I've never, you know, been able to shake. There's the, there is a certain kind of siege mentality yeah. that in uh, a neighborhood
3: mentality, like yeah, you're not from this neighborhood or you're from this neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. So, yeah. you know, I have no regrets about growing up where and when I did, but it you know the the things that that sort of you're you're forged a certain way and new york was pretty it was pretty spicy so <laughs> that's, that's great do you feel like that had a
3: that that, that has had an effect on your work like uh, reading like dotty's inferno or so or so like because i feel like uh there's there's a part in there i think you mentioned the the queen's accent rubs off on you i was laughing uh i laughed at that
1: yeah well everything <laughs> everything i mean i I, fortunately i think i don't have much of a of a queens or new york you know neither do i i have an east coast accent for sure but uh you know i don't talk like you know a lot of guys from the neighborhood who kind of had that kind of voice fortunately i don't have that but yeah i mean the thing is it's i've been in california now for four years I'm working on a new thing now. It's still set in New York. I don't. I don't know how many years it's going to take for me to live here, before I ever feel like I can do something that feels authentic. You know, New York. New York is is who I am, and that's why every book I've done, is a New York book. You know, I mean, even if Dottie's Inferno takes place in hell, it's very New York hell. <laughs> <laughs> there is some New York aspect to it. I'll give you that. So it. You know. I've made my peace with that. I think if I set a book literally on another planet, it would be New York. Planet. <laughs> <laughs> There'd be a vibe to it that I don't necessarily think I could shake. You know, I, I and it's I would feel like maybe this is some kind of shortcoming of mine. But, you know, Stephen King. Great, great writer. He can't write city people. He, no. he can't. I've read enough of his books where it's like the city people always feel like an impression of city people. He knows down home people. He knows folks, good folks from, you know, nice parts of Maine, you know. They're, they're that's what he's very authentic with in his writing. You know, I always admire people who I can write regional Authentically, you know, because it's mm-hmm. like, I know this person hasn't been all these places, but at least to me reading it, it feels right. It makes mm-hmm. sense. Could be wrong. Okay. Could be completely wrong. I only just, like, for instance, only yesterday, uh, I just watched the new Amazon uh, Reacher series.
0: Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. With, uh, yeah, because they got rid of Tom Cruise. Now they got this big tall guy or something. He's great. Yeah. He's
2: great.
1: I, I was a fan of that guy from another series. Who He's is he? 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 he's alan Richson. all right now i'll turn into alan richson's uh pr guy okay okay alan That's nice. was in a very underappreciated series that i will talk about all day long a thing called blood drive that was on sci-fi channel oh i loved that thing it was like it was very like um grindhouse like yes. yeah Every, I, d- I dug it i dug exactly. it every episode was like a different homage to a different kind of grindhouse movie It was so good. It was too beautiful for them. They people. had to put the blood in the car. like, it was, it was
3: amazing. I agree. I, I, I did love that.
1: Yeah. So he was the male lead of that. Okay. Um, anyway, uh, but, the, but the reason I mention it is I didn't even know until yesterday that the guy who writes the books and I write a bunch of the books, I didn't know he was uh, a Brit and ah. very American books.
0: Well, they take place in like the movies took place in Pittsburgh or something like that. Right. Like because uh, I saw the first Tom Cruise movie and it was good. It was good.
1: Yeah, well, they're all over the place. The whole OK, time. OK, the OK, OK. The character is, you know, he's 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 a nomad. He just goes from place to place. He's he's like the Hulk with no superpowers. <laughs> <laughs> just, just kind of going along with his with his toothbrush and his wallet, you know, travels light. But, you know, so there's a guy who's who's a UK writer doing very American stuff. And I never felt like, oh, who's this guy trying to be American? You know, he did a good job. I I don't think I could do the same for. This is maybe this is, again, falling into the the imposter syndrome stuff. I know my limitations and I think it kind of keeps me honest. It's like there's certain things, even if I like certain genres or whatever, I'm not the guy to do that.
0: There's nothing wrong with that. My favorite writer in the whole wide world is James Elroy. I love James Elroy. I wouldn't ever think of doing something like that because I wouldn't even know where to begin. So, I mean, but there's something to be said about that. Like you appreciate the art for what it is, but you know what you're capable of doing. I think that's very
1: self-aware. Yeah, I think that helps. I think it helps. You know, there's a certain kind of people that I'm comfortable writing Um, I'm very I'm very comfortable writing all kinds of people, but I know the ones that I am not writing from an authentic point of view are probably coming from a mocking point of view. (laughs) So You know, that's not great either, but it makes for good comedy. Um, But yeah, you know, like I would never I, I have a friend and I have a lot of admiration for him. He's a novelist friend of mine and. He keeps switching up genres and he's really good. Like, he does his homework. And so, like, he started off as a horror novelist and then he wrote epic fantasy and then he moved on to kind of like Tom Clancy tech thriller and then back. It's like, and he does the work. Like, he really does the work. But he's a guy, he's one of these propulsive plotters. He's like somebody who really, for me, I'm a very character driven creator Mm
2: -hmm.
1: yeah and he's a i would say a very plot driven creator which is not to say his characters aren't good but the plots are really what anchor the book and really what hook you you're like what comes next what comes next and that's really admirable you know and uh and i think he does it very authentically no matter what the genre it feels like oh yeah that's what this guy does like so when you realize, oh, he's done like six other genres before this, that's that's pretty amazing. His name's Dave Wellington. I should throw out the shout out to him, Dave Wellington. Look him up. We'll still have to check him out. But I mean,
0: you do your own thing, because I mean, you've written tons of comics, and you even had like what uh, Lukey and Mookie for a while in Mad Magazine. But yeah. then you're yeah. but then you're also writing prose. So I mean, how does how do you turn off your your, your prose brain and turn on your comics brain or vice versa, because you have have pariah with heavy metal that just came out. So like, how Mm -hmm. did you approach writing prose
1: because it's a completely different writing style? Well, I mean, the thing is, it's like, you know, I, I won't say I was super well-rounded, but I was at least there was, at least there was a curve to my interests. Um, So, you know, growing up, especially since most comics didn't turn me on, you know, the superhero stuff and all that. I read a lot of novels. And so I think I've always nurtured both of those parts of my brain. Cause to me, story has always been as definitely as important as, as the art, you know, it was never like one over the other. It's like, I want to have something that's fun to read and fun to look at, but having, been a book kid and then a book adult I wanted to write novels it was like and I didn't want to be so kind of parochial in my approach to my career where it's like well I do this one thing because the other thing is I like I kind of indicated before you know there was that period where I was also beginning to feel a lack of satisfaction it was like okay I've done comics now for whatever 20 years and I was hitting a wall. It's just like, okay, I need a break. And I didn't want to take a break and not do something creative. so it was like, time to finally write that novel. And you know, I've written, I mean, I've had two novels published, but I've written more than two novels. It's just they, you know, certain certain books never get published. Um, but the first book I wrote, just to kind of get that part of my brain uh, going, was a much more of like a a kind of a dark farcical novel it was a book called and then things got messy which sort of fell somewhere i know it was very influenced by like writers like bruce j friedman and donald westlake there was like kind of a weird combination of sensibilities there The book is so dated now it's the kind of thing where like if i ever dusted it off thinking could this be published now uh it it would be too dated it's very much like the world has just changed too much um uh but it was a good it was a good enough book that it got me you know at the time a literary agent and uh you know it came close to getting published a couple of times but at that point i just writing that book got me comfortable enough with the discipline of just writing without leaning on pictures, you know, it's like, okay. And then, you know, my father, both my parents were really very bookish people. They both were avid readers, which was very helpful because like my dad was also a very, very critical guy. So like just hearing, Some of his complaints about certain books would kind of make me think, okay, don't do that thing, don't do this thing, don't do that thing. (laughs) That's (laughs) awesome. Um, There's a an afterword, an afterword in the. That's an awkward way to hold it. Hey,
0: look at that pariah! There it is.
1: Um, but in the afterword, there's a comedy podcast by. a couple of have you ever heard of riff tracks oh of course yes. i mean yes.
0: i am a huge mst 3k riff tracks guy yeah. like I, I love
1: it yeah so so mike nelson and connor Listoka um do a book podcast that's fun which is great a book podcast called 372 pages we'll never get back <laughs> and it's kind of you know the sort of riff tracks mst mentality of like let's take on something we probably won't like and then have fun with it. And, but the thing is, you know, I was a huge fan, still am a huge fan of that podcast. But when you listen to a comedy podcast about books and week after week, they point out tropes that seem to come up a lot in bad books. Yeah. (laughs) Again, it's educational because even though they're not, that's not their primary Uh, goal their goals to be uh, entertaining and funny there's a lot that I got from listening to them week after week after week where it was like okay what's what in my work needs addressing so again because it's like I it's that when you read the bad review and think okay how how much about this bad review do I agree with Mm -hmm. right Um, so, you know, this, this new edition of Pariah. Pariah originally came out in 2010 uh, from tour. And I was very proud of that book, but I've had 10 years to think about what could be improved. And some of that came from conversations with my manager, because, you know, uh, we've also been trying to get a movie made of it. Um, but also some of it was listening to a comedy podcast. Because it was just... Like, okay, what have they talked about? What can I make better in this new edition? I think this is a much better edition than the original one. Um, more kind of more disciplined and more focused and, and a lot of things, but there's certain, there's certain things that people tend to lean on. In... Uh, you can tell when a writer is injecting his or her or their uh, sort of pet peeves and what have you, and it's like, well, I'm going to put this thing, these words in the voice of of this character, but they're just bitching in a book. They're just using their character to be their the sort of public voice for. Yeah, yeah, a little of that goes a long way, and I realized there was more of that in the previous draft than I was comfortable with. Okay, why is this guy such a little bitch? Why is he? <laughs> <laughs> Bob. <laughs> but hey, it was the character that I related to most, which, you know, that was the other thing, it's like it was a very kind of interesting psychological process revising a book mm-hmm. that I'd written so long ago because it felt like my eyes were much more wide open to the person I was when I originally wrote it.
0: And and I think you would you feel like you've gotten better since then, like you've grown as a creator, so why not go back and kind of cherry pick and and and, tw- and tinker, you know? it's all it's so. it's bound to improve i well you know
1: this is this is this is the slippery slope <laughs> I, I doubt whether i coined this term but the term i i often use is lucasing <laughs> you know where it's like you don't want to lucas your work too much because
3: then you just mess it up yeah
2: like just like it, he did yeah
1: exactly mm-hmm. um there's there's that line you know it's always you just want to toe the line of you want to get it right you don't want to go over the line and start larding it up with too much you don't you know not you don't need every inch of the frame with little aliens making funny noises and that's that's what i try to think of when i revisit my work because it's like okay i see what's wrong with it or at least what could be improved Mm -hmm. But then you hope you don't hit.
0: You hope and you don't hit over that. You like, hit Gre- Greedo shooting
3: first, and then the whole thing's <laughs> stupid. Well, or or you hope you don't hit an Anakin, like where, like you. I I didn't need to know Darth Vader was Anakin before. Like I just wanted him to be the baddest dude in the galaxy.
2: Yeah, <laughs> I didn't need
1: the other stuff. You Have know? you ever heard that great Patton Oswalt bit about running into George Lucas when he was coming up with the prequels? Oh God, no no look it up just type in <laughs> oswalt and i guess you know george lucas george lucas on the street you'll okay. find it but the whole thing is like you know i mean basically the long story short is you want the ice cream you don't want all the to know what all the ingredients are
0: yeah no, i feel you
1: right and uh yeah did we really need three pictures to show us the darth vader had a bad childhood. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: that somebody... he hates that he hates sand so Pariah Redux is out right now like if I wanted to get that book I can go to find book retailers all over the world all over the country all over the internet and pick that up yes
1: I certainly hope so yes and,
0: and then um, your other book with heavy metal that just came out too is why is the name escaping me Dottie's uh, Inferno Dottie's, Infer- Dottie's, <laughs> In- Dottie's Inferno is quite a read
2: yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah. Actually, today was a big day because um, I just got the uh, the French edition in the mail. Wow, well, so, look at that! Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> that was pretty pretty cool day. But uh, I I'm showing things to you guys. I assume this is just a,
0: but it's, yeah, there's
1: the heavy yeah. metal one. That's good. I like it. Yeah, I, hopefully I'll be doing more Dotty. That's cool. Uh, there's no no lack of material in hell and
3: you had great pinups too in the back i, I noticed it was like panocean did you one uh, i saw Chakin one i saw mignola one i was like mm-hmm. oh my god like it, who didn't who didn't do a pinup for this book
1: yeah well again this is i'm very lucky to to be able to call these people friends you know this is you stay in stay in an industry long enough hopefully you get to uh win the respect of some of the people whose work you've admired over the years and yeah. And they're very generous, very generous people. That's awesome. That's yeah. awesome. That's
0: awesome. So Dottie's Inferno is out now. You can pick that up. You can pick out, or you can pick up Pariah. You said you're working on, now the thing you're working on next, that's in New York, is that comics or prose?
1: That's comics.
0: Okay. Uh, yeah. A little, a little sneak preview about what that is or is that hush hush can't say anything?
1: I'm keeping a little hush hush. I mean, okay. right now the, the working title is Printopia and it's uh the Anchor is a, a print shop in New York, but then there are all these sort of character uh, vignettes about okay. the weirdos and oddballs that come <laughs> into this print shop.
0: That sounds awesome. I,
1: I think it's very funny. Hopefully other people will think it's funny.
0: Well, you have a track record of being funny, so I think there's a good shot people will dig it. I so, hope you so. Know? You can live on your reputation. And don't read any of the bad reviews. Just skip them. Just skip them. Skip them. can't help
1: it. I've never been smart enough to be one of those people. I always love when you see, you know, people, actors and directors. I never read reviews. They're,
0: they're full of shit. They know they read all That's of them. A we all, everybody does because they want to know what people are saying about them. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, do you remember the worst review you've ever read?
1: Oh my god.
0: Like like does one stick out like a like a poker in your brain?
1: It's. F- it's funny because, I mean, the Internet's become the great equalizer. You know, it used to be criticism was kind of limited because it was like whoever's writing for magazines. But, of course, now on Amazon, anybody can give you their one-star review. And, <laughs> any,
0: any shit head the they, keyboard.
1: <laughs> carry, you know, they carry just as much weight as anybody else. Everybody's got an opinion now, and they're only too happy to share it. <laughs> there, there, was, there was a review... Um, boy, this is going to sound so petty that I think about this stuff. It's okay. There was a review of a graphic novel. It was the first graphic novel I ever did, so I'll give myself a little bit of, uh, you know, um, I don't know what the word Le- is. leeway. Leeway, yeah. I yeah. was I was the first graphic novel I ever did. It was a thing called White Like She. Okay. Uh, that Dark Horse put out. And um, it got collected as a book, uh, curiously by Fantagraphics, not Dark Horse. And somebody wrote this scathing review. They were like, ah, if I could give this zero reviews, I would. You know, it's like zero stars, I would. But the thing is, as I read it, I was like, yeah, he makes a lot of good points. <laughs> so, this, is the, this is the problem, you know? It's like, because there'd also been enough years since I'd done it that I was very critical of that book myself, where I was like, oh, I could have done this better, I could have done that better. So it's not like it was a bad review. The bad reviews that stick with you are the ones that actually have some merit. Mm-hmm. You know, if somebody's just an asshole and they're just just taking pot shots at you, whatever. Yeah, fuck
0: fuck them. Yeah. Who yeah. cares? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. But if it's a smart person, it's the worst, isn't it? <laughs> it's the worst. They're landing their punches. It's like, ooh. I wasn't so sure about that oh they got me (laughs) solar plexus it's like those are the reviews that where you're just like damn it i can't disagree too much (laughs) i want to defend myself i and you know then you the one thing though the one thing that uh, is a piece of wisdom i don't remember who told me but they were like never address your critics because there's that urge. You really feel that urge of, like, I'm going to find this person. I'm going to contact this person. <laughs> like, who do you think you are? Or, yeah, good point. You made a pretty good yeah. <laughs> Like, do not engage. Never engage. There you go. Never. I think that is the
0: perfect way to leave this interview. Bob Fingerman says... Don't engage the the critics. Just let, let them be. Because I think you're only going to make it worse. That's my opinion. Unless,
1: unless it was a great review, in which case it's sometimes nice to say, thank you so much.
0: Yeah, yeah, there you go. I have
1: done go. that. You know, there have been yeah. some nice reviews and it was just like, unfortunately, then you sort of taint the waters because then you've had personal contact. And yeah, they yeah. won't review you again. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, oh, that guy's kind of nice. Yeah, I guess I'll never review him again because <laughs> now my my purity has been muddled. But, or muddied but uh <laughs> anyway
0: but but Bob we appreciate you taking time out of your day man this was a lot of fun
1: yeah thank you so much I, I enjoyed it I, I probably said too much and spoke too much but oh, so no that's that's, that's what you're that's, here for that's yeah. the whole
0: point I don't want to talk mm-hmm. to some wallflower who's not going to say anything I
1: like my podcast guests to be taciturn that's what I like for. <laughs> <laughs> don't talk so
0: much no, the more you talk, the better. It's awesome. Ah, here, hang on, let's do this. Where, there it is. You're listening to the Word Bros Podcast. The WordBros.com